This is Big Talk, Michael Glab here. If a person has to grow up with a show business parent and all the attendant challenges that ensue, she or he could do a lot worse than having as a father. A nice, decent, down-to-earth Indiana boy like Hoagland Howard Carmichael. Yeah, I'm uh, speaking of our own, Bloomington's own, Hoagie Carmichael. He was the music star, the movie star, one of the biggest names in show business in the middle of the last century. His compositions, Stardust, Georgia On My Mind, and Old Buttermilk Sky, still standards in the American songbook. Now, joining us on Big Talk, his firstborn son, Hoagie Carmichael's, also named Hoagie, Hoagie Bix Carmichael. Thank you. Good morning, Michael. You're in town to help with the opening of the Indiana University Theater Department production of Stardust Road, a Hoagie Carmichael musical journey. Uh, what's going on with that show, which, by the way, opened last night? Correct. Well, it is, um, it's an interesting project because we are trying to develop a musical theater show that uses pre-existing music, all of that's the canon. Right. So you can't write a story, a book, and then expect to sort of shoehorn in songs when you think they might work. So our, our director is this marvelous woman called Susan Shulman, and she was the one that pushed the producers of Smokey Joe's Cafe to move it away from a book into a sort of song-driven book, if you follow what I'm saying. So the songs tell the story. And we have seven, uh, well, six terrific uh, young kids from the university, juniors, soon to be juniors. And believe me, they can sing and dance. And then we have a fellow from Chicago playing the seventh role, so only seven players. Uh -huh. It's an hour and a half. They're singing and dancing. Oh, singing and dancing like crazy. Yeah. Oh, yeah, there's something like 23 songs in the show. Some of Dad's little gems, now, of course, Stardust and Skylark and Nearness and, and you know, a lot of those songs are in there, but the biggest song in the show has only been recorded once. Yeah. It's called The World of No Goodbyes. And if you if you don't raise from your seat, having heard that song <laughs> and the way it's sung and arranged, uh, you shouldn't be in the theater. How did you get uh, involved in this big project? Well, I've almost always, not always, but almost always been involved in some form of entertainment. In about 1986 or 8, something like that, I thought... You know, there's this wonderful catalog of music. Let me try. Well, I didn't know much about theater. I mean, I've been many, many, many times. I had friends, but I never produced anything in theater, yeah. having produced everything else you can imagine. So I, I, uh, I started and made some mistakes, for sure. Uh, 
And uh, and then I let it drop, and then I tried some other approach, and that was good, but not good enough. And so five years ago, I met Susan Schulman, mm-hmm. our director, and um, she's the right person. And our choreographer is this fabulous man called Michael Lichtefeld, and Larry Yerman's our, our uh, musical director. He just got off Patti LuPone's last show. So wow. he really understands this music. If you are... Um, a cabaret artist, you don't necessarily get this music. It's, it's jazz-driven. It's Bloomington, Indiana, Bucktown-driven. And uh, when Dad was 15, 18, by the time he was 18, he had his own band, you know. But yeah. he heard a lot of this music slipping off to Chicago and places like that. And it's not Sondheim. Right. It's Carmichael. Yeah. Two different things. You know, speaking of two different things, just dumb luck. I got finished reading the biography of Frank Sinatra. Oh, right. Uh, And this one was called Sinatra, the Chairman. And then right after that, I was given by Tom Rosnowski from here in Bloomington, your dad's book. And I, it was the neatest conjunction of books. uh, (laughs) And two guys who weren't trained. They were not formally trained. No training at all. They were geniuses well, in music you, in their own way. Yeah, but you see, that's why. And I grew up with a lot of kids who were whose mother and father were, you know, big stars. And some of them, the Crosby kids, are from here to where my cars parked, less yeah. maybe. And you know, those kids tried to be their father. That's uh-huh. a mistake. That is a mistake. Somehow, that passed through one. That idea passed into my head and stayed there. Don't try to be that guy in the den there. Early work on? Out. Oh, yeah, very early on. My brother tried it, and, and it didn't work out. By the way, Sinatra and Dan had a dressing room <laughs> at NBC uh, for some show in the in the, about 1956, 7 or so. Yeah. And I was hanging out, you know, watching everything, and I knocked on, knocked on the door, opened up the door, and Dad wasn't in there, but Sinatra was. And he turned around and looked at me and he says, get out of here, kid. (laughs) And I ran. (laughs) Two totally different guys. Oh, you have no idea. They couldn't possibly be more different. And yet they liked each other's work. Dad was a big fan of Sinatra's. And Sinatra sang a a bunch of Dad's songs, including just the verse of Stardust. Are you having fun doing this work here in Bloomington? I am uh, for two reasons, really. One, because uh, I have watched these kids um, embrace this music. And the first two days, I thought, oh, Jesus, that guy and that guy and maybe even that girl is just not going to make it. No kidding. And I was so wrong. And we all actually were fearful. They have taken this music and this idea, gone home, rehearsed all them in their bedrooms till 11 or whatever it is, and come in and come back prepared and have um, opened up. And that is a terrific thing. I mean, I, I, I would give my right leg instantly now in front of you if Dad could come to one of these performances. And two, of course. Fun. It's been work, but uh, good work because this show has really developed here.
And you know, thanks, only. by the way, excuse me, but thanks in a big way to Indiana University, yeah. Dad's alma mater. He went to law school here. He did and finally graduated. He could have been a, a, a renowned lawyer. No, but I don't he think so. decided not no. to. No, I disagree. Oh, really? <laughs> I don't think he could have been a renowned lawyer. It was no? too much of this other stuff buzzing around in his head like uh, it's a wasp nest of, of, of songs, you know, that you, he was thinking about. The old line is, from what I've heard, is that he was uh, over at the, the book nook uh, on Indiana, and uh, he was hanging around around there and got the, uh, the melody of Stardust in his head and ran into the book yep, nook. that's right. Started banging on that keyboard. Yeah, they had a piano instead of pizzas. Yeah. It, was, uh, <laughs> it was a piano area in the back, which he banged on many, 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 many times. But, uh, yeah, that's, that's a tale about to being... Along correct. with a guy named Bix Beiderbeck. Bix wasn't there for that. He wasn't there at that time? Well, that he's the second guy you're named after. That's correct. And what was his relationship to Hoagie? Well, Dad had heard him play, and I've forgotten exactly where. And uh, one of the ways that Dad made some money was he would book bands uh, um, into IU for you know sorority dances or yeah. some event. And Dad got the idea to uh, bring uh, Bix in, and uh, that's how he met Bix and. Bix asked him, Dad was sort of, you know, in awe of Big Spiderbeck, and finally Bix said, well, play me something. And Dad played Riverboat Shuffle and, and a couple things, and Bix looked at Dad, and he said, you may want to be a lawyer, but uh, there's some magic on the ends of that thing, those fingers. And that was the beginning of that mentorship wow. and the reason that uh, I'm called Bix. They were buddies. Oh God, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. They um, bourbon was the uh, <laughs> the soda of choice, and music was what um, reeled them in together. They just uh, they couldn't get enough of it. You could have gone into this business, but you didn't. You chose your own path, and I've got to say, more than you chose your own path, you chose your own paths. Many of them. Yeah, I can't stick with one thing for very long, I guess. <laughs> but you've been successful at so much. Let, let me go over a, a couple of things that you've done. You've been an assistant director on films. I worked for Burt Lancaster, and yeah. that was a marvelous experience in my life at Columbia Pictures, and he, he was terrific to me. Well, that's when you were sort of a young punk, and you oh, were I trying was to figure out what to do. Huh? 18. You were 18? 18, 19, 20, 21, I worked for Burt, yeah. Wow. I left for New York when I was 22, I think. You went to New York to be a stockbroker or I tried did. to be? But, yeah, six years of it. And I, it was hard for me. It just wasn't my... You put in a thing, you bought some stock, you made a little money, and you went home. Well, that yeah. wasn't enough for me. Well, that, that lasted for a little while, and then you moved to Boston. That's correct. You were a public television producer. I, I was at GBH for four years and nice. then got induced by Time Life to make a film about their uh, photographers. Yeah. And in fact, was in that photography area where all those guys, and Dominus and Gray Ballet and all those people were, when the news hit that 
life was folding. Yeah. I was standing there. No kidding. And oh, you should have seen the knees buckle because, yeah. you know, they would send Dominus to South Africa for one shot. I mean, and put them up in great hotels, and you know. Anyway, uh, and it was the end of careers. And and then I went to Pittsburgh and uh, was uh, uh, produced Mr. Rogers for a couple of years, three years. Speaking of icons of the 20th century, Mr. Rogers. And then again, I moved back to New York. I just I had something I really really wanted to do, and believe it or not, it was to make bamboo fishing rods. <laughs> what? Boy, oh, boy, what? That is another thing. What? I had uh, seen somewhere that uh, uh, your dad had introduced you to trout fishing. No. You shook your finger at me, so shake it again. No, uh, it was this marvelous, marvelous brunette uh, called Lynn, who uh, I loved dearly, dearly, so dearly. And uh, we went to Expo 67 and then came back. In Montreal? Uh, yeah, sure. Yeah. We came back down to Vermont, and uh, she put a fly rod in my head, which I'd never... I was a golfer. I was actually yeah. a very, very, very good golfer. And I uh, tried to catch a fish for three days, but I realized that there was an enormous amount to that sport. That it, it I knew nothing, and I wanted to learn. And I, I literally... I was a one-handicapped golfer, and I stopped completely. And took up fly fishing. It really didn't Just hit. Like that. Didn't hit a ball for forty-seven years. Hey, I found this great quote about fishing from you. Fishing is a jerk on one end of the line, <laughs> waiting for a jerk on the other end of the line. There's some truth to that. But my <laughs> but my favorite quote that I like to use is just to show you that it's not about killing. Let me find a good fish, and if I do, I'll get a thousand dreams out of them. And if I catch them, well, let them go. It's not about whacking them over the head. It's about the experience huh. of seeing a fish, putting your stuff on, going out, finding them, ah, and trying to figure out how to put the hook in his mouth. Yeah. And once the hook's in his mouth, it's over for me. So are you saying you don't eat the fish? Oh, I haven't killed the fish since the 90s, 1990s. No, and I've caught hundreds and hundreds. No, no, no. The, uh, uh. A sport fish, Lee Wolf said this, a sport fish is too valuable to only catch once. Why, why, why kill him? Yeah. yeah. I, 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 I couldn't do that. Well, but you have dedicated a lot of hours to making poles. No, not poles, rods. Now, what, <laughs> what would be the difference? A pole is more of a um, spinning oh. kind of thing or, you know, put a hook on the end of a worm. Uh, fly rods are fly rods. They're not fly poles. Uh-huh. Anyway, it's just, just a little bit of education for you, Michael. So that you, I, I am uh, educated and, now from that. Do not make that mistake again. I In front never. of a fly <laughs> <video>. <laughs> Now, these poles that you oh, make... Uh, oh. Can't teach a man over 50 anything, is what I'm finding. Old dog. Oh, that's right. <laughs> these rods... Now you got it. <laughs> ...made of a special bamboo from a certain place there's, in China. There's only one place in the world that grows this particular species called the Rundinaria mobilis, uh, and it's in a small area... Um, 
35, something like that, square miles, way up into China. It's a fabulous, uh, uh, it's so strong. It's really, really strong and resilient. And that's where it comes from. You cannot make successfully, you cannot make a bamboo fly rod out of any other material, other than graphite and fiberglass, but I mean of the natural material. And I met this man, Everett Garrison, um, 1968, I think that's right. And uh, he was he was considered to be one of the great makers of all time. And I, I befriended him, and I, and I thought, you know, I'm working in Pittsburgh for Fred, uh, but I'm I'm coming home every I'm coming to New York almost every weekend to to learn about this craft, and I've told him I want to make a film about him. And this is now becoming part of my life, a yeah. big part of my life. Anyway, I did make the film, and then I promised him I'd write a book about it, and I did. And um, it's um, we're up to twenty three thousand some odd copies. It's um, it changed that whole yeah craft sport that book, if I may say. And so anyway, and then I made a. I he died, and I got all these tools, and I made a hundred and three of them. And then I thought, yeah, I've done that, you know. <laughs> and all, Next of, all of our tools are in the in the museum. Do you play any music? I played the drums for a long time. Yeah. And I was, um, Dad always said I was better than I was. I was a Midland drummer, you know. I learned from a guy, my name was Stan Levy, who was a great bebop drummer and out on the West Coast. And... Uh, it was my life for quite a while. Instead of studying really hard, I would, I would do what I thought I needed to do, and then I'd, I'd play. So much has gone on in your life. Another thing is, and it probably relates to the show that is going on. If you're just joining us, we're with Hoagie Bix Carmichael. That's a famous name here in Bloomington. Uh, his daddy-o was Hoagie <laughs> Carmichael. Yes, he was. <laughs> And, and he's here for the show that's running right now, opened last night at the Wells Mets Theater. And again, the name of the show is Stardust Road, a Hoagie Carmichael musical journey. Another thing you've done in your life probably relates to your work with this, and that is an outfit called Amsong. Well, what's that all about? Well, we, uh, a lot of intellectual property was um, going to expire mm -hmm. uh, 75 years after it was copywritten. Uh, songs like Stardust by now would, would be in public domain and people could use uh, the music and call it Sawdust if they wanted to or uh -huh. ch or change certain things or, or turn the song into a religious yeah. thing or a... Um, white supremacist thing, or yeah. uh, Bernie Sanders, you know, I mean, anything. and yeah, anything, and a bunch of us got together, and in fact, we got together in Elmer Bernstein's apartment in the Dakota, fabulous building in New York, Famous. and there were, the Berlins were there, and the uh, Hammersteins were there, and uh, Sondheim was there, and I was there, and I could keep going on, Dorothy Fields' son, David Lum, and a whole bunch, about 25 of us in the room. And Mary Rogers stood up, uh, Richard Rogers' daughter, and said, gave a little talk about about 
if we band together and work together as a team, we, working with ASCAP, American Society of Composers, um, could uh, help bring this to the attention of, uh, of Congress and to members of the uh, judiciary, who, by the way, um, oh, what's his name, from Utah? Um, Orrin Hatch? Orrin. He's a songwriter. Get out of here. Now, he wrote you know, religious stuff, Mormon stuff. Yeah, sure. I'm not sure it would ever make the hip parade. <laughs> but look, I got to shake his hand, and he was delighted to meet me, and all that sort of stuff helped, you know? Yeah. And uh, we worked for two and a half, three years. Michael Eisner came in because he was about Stardust and Mickey Mouse the same yeah. year. The agent 1927, eight. That's right. Yeah. And he sat with Bill Clinton and said, look, you got to add 20 years to this, to any song written prior to 1978. And it passed Congress. And he signed it. So uh, we did an awful lot of work. It was marvelous work for me because uh, I got to meet all these guys. We're still friends, a lot of us. And um, it it, it, it really felt like the right thing to do, sure. It, in, it it helps ensure more income for all of us heirs. Yeah. I, I get that. But it also kept a lot of those. And, there. By, oh, by the way, we met a couple of people who had already lost, who were the originators of this music, guys in their 90s, yeah. who, had, who, had, who had lost their own copyrights. One guy down in Nashville, a black guy who, you know, was living on Social Security because his songs were gone, you know. Anyway, boy, anyway. Boy. So, uh, and Eisner uh, put the final stamp on it. And so it was, it was a great experience. And I learned a lot about how things work in Congress and what to do and what most of Quick song, quick story. I mean. <clears throat> we were in Kennedy's office. I had just met with Ted him. Kennedy. Yeah. Yeah. And we just met with him. And he, he gave us 10 minutes. And he said, look, I get it. This is fine. You got my back. So we go into uh, the next office is uh, um, oh, Senator from Vermont, Pat Leahy. Yes. Now, we've got, um, oh, my God, I can't remember her name right now. Um, she's uh, Margaret Whiting uh-huh. in the room. Margaret's uh, had a few drinks, but she's, uh, she's fine. And Hatch says, um, not Hatch, um, Leahy says, uh, look. I read quickly. I know what you guys are up to. I'm only going to sign on to this if Margaret sings Moonlight in Vermont. <laughs> and she got through it somehow. And <laughs> he said, done. You're all set. And left the room. <laughs> well, that's the way things are legislated, yeah, yeah. you know. If it's not war with China or something. What a life, Hoagie Bix Carmichael. I just don't, I can't stay with anything for very long. That's my problem. (laughs) You don't need to. No. Why should you? I don't know. (laughs) Hey, some funny stories. Uh, You know, uh, your father did a lot of movie work. I just loved him as cricket. (laughs) You're not alone. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And, of course, he was in Young Man with a Horn, as you alluded to and all that. And Best Years of Our Lives. Which best was Years a, of Our Lives. Yeah. And, he uh, owned the, the, the bar. Yeah, that's that. right. Yeah. That's right. But one thing, real quick. Um, my dad came from Bloomington. Yeah. He was told he should be a lawyer. Yeah. 
And by the time he was 25, he was uh, uh, 26. He was a, 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 a you know, a real, uh, a consummate musician. Yes. He had never had, never, ever had any training on any level, none, zero, not one hour of acting or singing. Some people would say he wasn't much of a singer, but he could put a song across. And a uh, composer, just think of this. I mean, Dad had his own radio shows. Mm-hmm. He was uh, he had his own television specials. Yep. He uh, was in a lot of movies. He wrote the songs for a lot of those music movies. Academy Award-winning songs. That's right. And uh, some of the great American standards. Yeah. And never, ever had a nickel's worth of training. He just had it. I don't think Sinatra was like that. But, yes. you know, uh, they, these guys come along um, because they... That's all they can do, <laughs> you know. They, which is great. They don't need. Uh, sometimes, and I've seen this. Believe me, I've seen people with God-given talent uh, start to 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 take lessons or work with people who have a different approach uh-huh. to the same discipline, and it does not help them. Oil and water. My dad was a dad. My dad was Hokey Carmichael, and when he went on to that set. Uh, he played himself, really. There's an interesting story about why he uh, chewed on a toothpick mm. in uh, the movie in which he played cricket. Not to have and have not. To have and have not, the Ernest Hemingway no. uh, story. And apparently he chewed on the toothpick because he was nervous. Yeah, that was his first film, really. And yeah. then Humphrey Bogart gave him a collection of different colored toothpicks. Oh, I, d- the, I didn't know that. From I, that book, uh, 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 Sudhalter's book. Oh, right. I forgot that. Oh, yeah. well, I read and, that book twice. And I it was a BS story, right. by the yeah. way. He said uh, each different color uh, corresponds to a different emotion that you should be playing. Right. <laughs> well, That's what Bogart told Right. Me. Uh, yeah. Well. well, you uh, would go on sets, for instance, and... You saw a guy from Louisville by the name of Victor Mature. Oh, right, yeah. Do you recall that story? I do. Um, Dad was making a picture with, uh, oh, I can't remember the name of this picture, a uh, Las Vegas story uh-huh. with Jane Russell and Victor Mature. And uh, I was about nine, maybe, or ten, and he had just come off a picture that had done very, very well called Samson and Delilah. Right. And... You know, he was uh, um, the big, strong, muscled guy. <laughs> and sound stages are um, inherently, you can't drive a car between them. They're very, very, it's four feet, five feet uh, at the most. Oh. And we were, my brother and I were there, and Victor Mature came around the corner. Oh, and there's <laughs> Samson. It wasn't Victor Mature to us, you know. <laughs> And we said, oh, Mr. Sampson, we're just so happy. Oh, is this what? He said, who are you? And we told him. And he said, oh. He said, and he reached his arms out and touched both sides of the Studio A and Studio B and started to push. And we ran like thieves. (laughs) (laughs) Sure that those stages were coming down. (laughs) I would like to thank gentleman by the name of Hoagie Bix Carmichael 
for being on Big Talk this week. Michael, I've enjoyed this very much. Thank Thank you. Thank you.